Isaiah begins the record of this incredible vision that he has been given by setting as an historical point of reference a moment in the history of the people of God. An event has taken place that shakes the people and unsettles them. It's the year of King Uzziah's death. We're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that Uzziah came to the throne at the age of 16 and reigned over the covenant people of God for some 52 years. A lengthy reign. A reign that brought much stability to the kingdom. His lengthy reign provided the people with a sense of security and prosperity. Uzziah had the distinction of being one of the very few kings in a long list of kings that seemed more like a rogues gallery than anything else. Uzziah had the distinction of being one of which it could be said he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We're told that Uzziah set himself to always seek the Lord. Always putting the Lord first. Wanting the Lord to lead him in his ways. He was instructed in the fear of the Lord. And as he began to mature in his reign as king, we're told that he restored and rebuilt the armies of Judah to again be a force known among the surrounding nations as a mighty power. And with these armies, he fought valiantly against the enemies of God and his people. But in addition to being a military king, he was also a king who loved the land, we're told. He loved the soil. And he invested in the land of his country, and he enlisted farmers and vine dressers to restore the land to its fruitful bounty. And as he invested both in the protection of his people, but also in providing for their needs, the fame of Uzziah grew and spread afar amongst the Philistines, and even extending all the way to the borders of Egypt. It was said of Uzziah that as long as he sought the Lord, he prospered. For God marvelously helped him. What a wonderful thing to be said of a king. Not only that God helped him in his reign, but that God marvelously helped him. However, in the later years of his reign... When he was at his strongest, Uzziah's heart became so proud that he left his palace and he arrogantly entered the temple 
and usurped unto himself a role and an office not assigned to him by the Lord. Acting as if he was priest, he attempted to burn incense upon the altar in the temple of God. But as he was in the act of attempting to do this, the priest came and confronted Uzziah along with 80 other valiant, courageous priests. And to his face, Isaiah was told, you are being unfaithful to the Lord. This is not for you to do. And in that moment, Uzziah was removed from having favor with the Lord, and he lived the rest of his life cut off from the house of the Lord as a leper. Not only was he cut off from the house of the Lord, but he did not even return to his own palace. For the remaining years of his life, he lived in a separate place. Great humiliation overwhelming his reign as the once powerful king became diminished, losing his strength and health, his own son having to step in and rule in his place until the announcement was made, the king is dead. And the people mourn. This is a national tragedy. 52 years of stability gone. And now the people are left wondering what will come next? What kind of king will he be? What kind of peace and prosperity will we have? The lengthy reign of King Isaiah, filled with so much hope, now ended in shame and death. And it's against this backdrop, in the year of Uzziah's death, that Isaiah receives a vision. And it is a vision of the holiness and of the reign of the King Eternal. In verse 1, as Isaiah marks the point in history in which he receives this vision, he then says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Our attention drawn to the singular majesty of this one. Who alone occupies a throne unmoved and unchanged by any earthly circumstances. Here the Lord sits. This is Adonai. The sovereign one who alone shoulders the weight of all governance. Both in heaven and on earth. Both visible and invisible. And to this one, this Lord sitting upon this throne. Belongs a kingdom. 
a dominion which is eternal and an everlasting dominion, a kingdom which can never be destroyed. He rules this kingdom from a throne that is high and lifted up and exalted far above all other rule and authority and power and dominion. And sitting over all things, with all things in subjection to him and under his feet, the inference is that he is supremely above all the entire created order. All things are his. They've been created by him and for him. He is before all things. And by him all things consist. This one reigns. The Lord reigns. The King supreme over all things. It is a tremendous opening to the vision of Isaiah. But then as if to add more weight to what he is seeing... And to even further impress us with the royal majesty and the greatness of this king, we are told at the conclusion of verse 1 that the train of his robe filled the temple. Just a few weeks ago, the world was riveted by the scenes coming out of the United Kingdom as the British people celebrated the platinum jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. And I'll confess to you that I am somewhat of an Anglophile, but only when it comes to the history of their monarchs. There is something rich about the history of the United Kingdom and their monarchy that captures my attention. So... During the Jubilee, I was not just a bit distracted by all of the pomp and the ceremony. And in addition to the the many live images that we saw broadcast uh, through our televisions, there was much archival footage of the Queen's early reign that were shown. But the film of her coronation intrigued me the most. For on June the 2nd, 1953, the Queen was formally crowned in Westminster Abbey. And what was fascinating to discover was that the Queen, during that over three-hour ceremony, wore four different robes. She entered the Abbey wearing the robe of state, which was 14 feet in length. A magnificent piece of clothing. And then she wore two other lesser robes during her oath and during her consecration. But then when the crown was placed upon her head, a new robe was placed upon her shoulders. And with a crown upon their head, the queen processing down the aisle of Westminster, that imperial robe now trailed long after her 
It was made of imported purple silk and velvet and trimmed with costly and expensive remain. Twelve seamstresses had worked over 3,500 hours embellishing it with needlework of gold thread. And in total, this robe weighed 15 pounds and was 21 feet in length. One of the iconic images is her processing through the choir with this lengthy robe behind her, six pages carrying it as she walked very slowly. But what is even more impressive about that scene is that it is pictured in the center of the enormous cathedral of Westminster Abbey. And it looks small in comparison to the building that she is in. When Isaiah lifts his eyes and he sees the Lord sitting upon that glorious throne high and lifted up, He sees him clothed in a robe that spills down over the sides of that throne and unfurls itself down from that high and lofty position. And then it begins to spread and fill every square inch of the temple. The beauty and the grandeur And the magnificence of this scene is truly extraordinary. One can only imagine the shoulders upon which this robe was set. And that if this one were to stand up from this throne, he would lift that robe up. The weight that it had. But as if this is not enough, we're told and we see that the sovereign Lord also has attendants waiting upon him. These are not young women dressed in white carrying his robe. No. Verse 2 tells us that they are seraphim, flaming angelic beings. The word seraphim means fiery ones. Matthew Henry in his commentary calls them burners. These angels being closest in proximity to the Lord, sitting upon his throne, are aflame with the glory of God. Yet as magnificent as they are in their appearance... They display extreme humility. They have six wings each. With two, it says that they cover their face. Even though they live always before the Lord, always in His presence, these seraphim cannot gaze wholly or completely upon this one who sits on the throne. The same way that we could not look at the sun for a length of time with the bare eye, 
or else our eyes would be burned. They cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. The lowest, most abased abased part of their created being, they cover it in humble fear and in modesty and in lowliness of being. And then it says that with two they flew. Of course, ready at a moment's notice to obey the voice of the Lord and to do whatever he commands them to do. But again, as striking as these creatures might be in their appearance, this is not what should capture our attention. What should capture our attention is what they say. Because here are these seraphim surrounding the throne. And they call out to one another in a constant cycle of exclamation saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The Lord of hosts It's here that we see that the Lord sitting on the throne is none other than the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The translator's way of telling us and informing us that this is none other than Yahweh. The name that is reserved for the Almighty One alone, the self-existent One, the One who has had no beginning and will have no end, the Eternal One who alone possesses immortality and alone dwells in unapproachable light. A whole sermon could be preached just on this name alone, but what is it that the seraphim say of this One? They say that He is holy, holy, Holy. The word holy in Hebrew denotes separation, a standing apart from all that is common and ordinary and profane and unclean in our human experience. And in all of the characteristics and attributes of God, this one alone is the only one that is repeated three times in one breath. And it's not just repeated so that the people in the back get it. But with each repetition of this word volleyed back and forth between the seraphim, it is an emphatic and unequivocal and absolute pronouncement of the very nature and essence of God. For with each calling out of the word holy, the weight of the majesty of God gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And what is the weight of the majesty and the holiness of God? That there is nothing and no one that is like Him. 
God stands separate and alone in his glory and in his majesty and in his splendor and in his holiness. He's not just the first and the best out of all the rest. With others just following behind, trying to keep up and trying to measure themselves up against him. No, God stands alone and apart from all other creatures and beings. There is no human or earthly category that you will find God in. He doesn't fit in those categories. He is a category all unto himself. He defines himself. He does not look around to find one against whom he may be measured. For there is no one. No other being anywhere that is or can become his equal. The reality of this is repeated as his holiness, his separateness, his apartness from all things. It's repeated over and over and over again. And it's a theme that it reoccurs in later writings of the prophet Isaiah. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, the question is asked, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? Rhetorically, the Holy One Himself asks the question, To whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal? And then as if this question needed answering, in chapter 46 of Isaiah, the Lord says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. So here is the Lord, separate and standing apart from all other created beings, alone, majestic in his authority and in his power and in his might to reign. But the seraphim continue by saying, the whole earth is full of His glory. You could take the most powerful telescope and point it to the farthest limits of the universe and find the galaxy furthest from where we are at. And you will find that the glory of God's holiness is still on brilliant display. You could descend into the deepest, darkest part of the sea, and there you will still find enough to proclaim that there is no one like God. Indeed, the psalmist in Psalm 19 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And day to day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal the knowledge of the Holy One. I encourage you, go outside tonight and look up. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. 
The one, the Holy One, who leads them forth as a host by number, calling them all by name. It is because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power that not one of them is missing. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. And all of creation from its beginning until now lifts its voice in glorious praise, agreeing with the seraphim full-throatedly that God is indeed holy, holy, holy. I think it's appropriate for us to pause here just for a brief moment and consider also the Trinitarian implications of this statement. For there is no more distinct and unique expression of the holiness of God than that He is three in one. There is none like Him. And this text in all of its glory points to this. John in his gospel, as he recounts The prophecies of Isaiah says that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ, the Adonai. And Paul in Acts chapter 28 quotes specifically from Isaiah chapter 6 and says that it was the Holy Spirit that said these things, later said to Isaiah. With the illumination of the New Testament helping us, we see that the Holy One seated upon the throne is the triune God. But as Isaiah sees this, he sees this and immediately knows this is the Almighty. Yahweh, robed in majesty. This is the Lord Adonai, shining forth in His glory. And He knows that the Spirit is speaking to Him with clarity. All three persons of the Godhead, gloriously seen here and presented for all. With these words. That He is holy, holy. Holy. And as this is being voiced by these seraphim, it says in verse 4 that the foundations of the thresholds trembled. And then the temple filled with smoke. So awesome is the presence of God in this place. That the walls begin to shake. The floor begins to buckle. The threshold begins to quiver. And then thick smoke pours into the temple. The density of which proclaims God is here. And Isaiah is overwhelmed. Isaiah's whole person has come in contact with the Holy One. His eyes have seen Him. His ears have heard of Him. 
He has felt the very floor beneath him tremble at the sheer weight of the presence of God. His nostrils are filled with the smoke. And the only response that he has to all of this is to cry out. I remember as I was watching some of the broadcast of the Queen's Jubilee, it was the last event on the last day. And the Queen had already issued a statement saying that she would retire from any further public events because of her age, because of her health, because of her mobility. But still, a large crowd gathered outside of Buckingham Palace in anticipation of the great concert to be the climax of the celebration of her 75 years of reigning as queen over all of the United Kingdom. And while the crowd is there getting itself typed in anticipation of this, the broadcasters are talking about the reign of Queen Elizabeth, and then suddenly the camera swings to the balcony of Buckingham Palace, and the doors of the balcony open. And to the surprise and shock of everyone, Queen Elizabeth appeared on the balcony, accompanied by her son, who would be the future king, accompanied by his son, who would be the future king, accompanied by his son, who would be the future king. But the people's eyes were fixed on just one, the queen. And they went berserk. British people losing their cool. (laughs) And what struck me almost humorously was that the broadcaster, who if you know anything about British broadcasters as they're describing royalty, speak in very measured tones, lost it. (laughs) And she cried out, she's here, almost like a little girl, jumping up and down in her seat. The queen had arrived. She is ecstatic. People down below pulling out their cell phones, taking selfies. They're just gloriously enraptured with being able to see the queen. That is not Isaiah's response. Here he is seeing the most magnificent king ever to reign. And he's horrified. And why is he horrified? Because in a moment he becomes aware of who he is. He says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's terrified. Why? Because he has a dirty mouth. And the mouth only speaks what comes from the heart. To the very core of who he is, he recognizes that he is corrupt. He is unclean. He is impure. And holiness is incompatible 
with uncleanness. Earlier in his prophecy in chapter 2, Isaiah says three times that the terror of the Lord, when the splendor of His majesty is revealed, causes men to try and hide themselves from His presence. They try to hide behind rocks, in holes. They even try to bury themselves in the dust because nothing pulls covers on uncleanness and impurity and sin than to stand in the presence of the Holy One and under the intense gaze of Him whose eyes are flames of fire. No one can hide. And Isaiah says, My lips are unclean and I dwell among people whose lips are also unclean. We're all ruined. In my institution, we still have to abide by certain COVID protocols, one of them being the wearing of masks. And here we are two years later, and much of the mask-wearing mandates have dissipated outside, but for some reason on the inside, we still have to abide by these protocols. And you would think that after such a long period of time that my youth, my Guys who are not usually the most compliant to governmental instructions (laughs) would be ripping these things off of their faces, done with them. However, it is surprising. The majority of them love wearing masks. And you know why? Because it covers their lips. And they can get away with saying things. And nobody knows who said it. They'll sit in the day room. They'll sit in the classroom. They'll be out and moving around the institution. Somebody will hear something said. Who said that? Hmm? They can't be held accountable. It's not just them who play this game. We foolishly think that we can play it as well. We purposefully ignore gazing upon the holiness of God. We do not want our attention drawn to His holiness. Because if it is, it tells us who we are. And we would rather not be told who we are by a holy God. We want to define ourselves by our own standard of measurement. Let me tell you, there is no hiding from God. Much like the little toddler that sits at the dinner table and says, let's play it hide and seek, daddy, and then sits in their high chair and covers their face and tells the daddy sitting right across the table, you can't see me. They still can be seen. And the one whose law is perfect. The one whose testimony is sure. The one whose precepts are right. The one whose commandments are pure. The one whose cleanliness inspires fear. The one whose judgments are true. The one who is holy, holy, holy. Sees everything of us. And Isaiah, in a flash, becomes aware 
of his sin and the sin of all those around him. And he realizes that he is ruined. Entirely stained. Thoroughly contaminated. In a word, guilty. Isaiah is convinced that swift and severe judgment is about to fall on him. This is why he is pronouncing upon himself tragedies. Woe is me. And I'm sure he's feeling what the psalmist experienced when he said, My flesh trembled for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I'm ruined. I'm done. Unraveling, disintegrating before the presence of this Holy One. And Isaiah, as he beholds the majestic holiness of the Lord of hosts and contrasts himself against his perfect purity, is finally persuaded that no good thing dwells within him. And he melts before the fervent heat of God's glory. Really, the only thing that he can do in this moment is confess the truth. That God is true and every man's mouth is filled with uncleanness and lies. The only thing that he can do is declare that the judgments of God are true and justified and righteous altogether. The only thing that he can do is confess that sin dishonors the Holy One. For it is against him and him only that he had sinned and done that which is evil in his sight. So with his eyes full of the holiness of God, Isaiah cries out in agonized concurrence that the Lord alone is holy and that he is not. My friends, this is true repentance. God's holiness demands that justice be executed upon the sinner. So the awareness of this should bring us Swiftly to our knees, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The Lord is holy and true and will most assuredly punish and avenge every sin committed against him. Again, Isaiah is overwhelmed by all of this. Yet as he cowers in dreadful fear, unsure of his fate, but only sure that he is ruined. The holiness of God is extended to him, but in a way that is truly awesome. We're told in verse 6 that a seraphim leaves for a moment the chorus of eternal, unending proclamation of the Holy One. And he flies to Isaiah no doubtably at the bidding of the Lord, the King. And in his hand, he carries a burning coal that has been taken from the altar in the temple. A coal that is so hot that even the fiery one, the seraphim, has to carry it with tongs, lest he be singed. And with the prophet Isaiah trembling under the sheer weight and magnitude of the holy presence of God, this seraphim takes that coal 
And he presses it against the lips of Isaiah. And as Isaiah's lips sizzle with the cleansing touch of God's holy fire, he hears said to him, Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. The eyes of the Holy One cannot look with favor upon iniquity. That upon that altar, a work of righteousness was offered up as a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. A work of righteousness foreign to anything that Isaiah himself could have ever done on his behalf. And with that burning ember taken from this holy altar and from that holy work of a righteous offering offered up unto the Holy One. Isaiah's iniquity is taken away and his sin is forgiven. We are privileged to see this Isaiah of, excuse me, this vision of Isaiah through the lens of Christ's work upon the cross. The cross where God's holiness was on full display. My friends, nowhere is the holiness of God on display before the eyes of us as men more than on Mount Calvary. As the supreme majesty of God shakes the earth. As the perfect, sinless, and pure Son of God hangs there upon that cross for all to see. The Holy One, the Lord, the Adonai, who knew no sin, was made sin on our behalf. And the wrathful fury of God's holy anger that cannot tolerate sin was poured out upon him to the fullest. And the sinless, righteous, holy Son of God yielded up himself unto death as a guilt offering for the transgressor. As Isaiah would say, who would believe this report? That the Lord would suffer many things, but would bear the sins of many and would be crushed for our iniquities. And in that glorious work done upon the cross with the fire of God burning, there was a glorious exchange. His righteousness, 
for our sin. Our filthy rags for His rich robe of righteousness. My friends in Christ, the searing heat of God's blazing holiness has become for us the only hope of our salvation. In chapter 57 of Isaiah, we hear these words of the Lord. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on, on a high and holy place, but also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Who could have thought of this except the sovereign one? May the holiness of God move us to abase ourselves before Him. May the holiness of God cause us to cry out of our unworthiness. May the holiness of God cause us to confess our sins and may we plead for the burning coal of Christ's righteousness to be applied to our heart and to our lips. For God is majestic in His holiness. God is perfect and pure in His holiness. And God is abundantly gracious and merciful in His holiness. Would you pray with me? Our Father, what a glorious thing it is for us to pause and consider the holiness of who you are. Indeed, there is none like you. You stand apart from us. Separate in your splendor and majesty. We stand far from you. Sinful. And unclean. Yet in your holiness you provided a remedy. In your holy son. He performed the work of righteousness that none of us could ever hope to accomplish. He absorbed the wrath of God that would have destroyed and devastated us for all of eternity. And then he rises as the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And he is seated upon the throne as the lamb that was slain. And he invites all who believe upon him to through him draw near to you, our holy God. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convince us of this truth. May we no longer argue against it. May we not hide ourselves from it. May we not cover ourselves when we find sin within us, but may we confess our sin knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are our king. We have no other. You are perfect. We are not. And yet to us, you are merciful. And for this we say, we are yours. Sear this to our heart and lips, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.